Hello, and welcome to the Phuket Stories Podcast. I'm your moderator, Saigon Steve. On this special podcast episode, we'll talk with military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam and talk with them about their extraordinary experiences. This podcast is pre-recorded, but you're invited to participate on future podcasts by emailing your contact information to phuketstories at gmail.com. That's phuketstories at gmail.com. So let's get started with today's special guests. Our special guests today are Jan Scruggs and Tony Fasolo, who served in the Vietnam War. Jan Scruggs conceived the idea of building a memorial to Vietnam veterans and founded the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, which built the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. The wall, as it is known, is visited by over 5 million persons yearly. Tony Fasolo served in Vietnam, working in the U.S. Army Adjutant General Section Headquarters in Long Binh. Among his duties working 12-hour days, seven days a week, he disseminated casualty reports, coordinated with hospitals, mortuaries, chaplains, and the next of kin. Here now is Jan Scruggs to begin the conversation. Jan? Jan Scruggs here. Tony, I'd like to hear a little bit about where you grew up, uh, I was the first one in the family uh, to go to college. I went to uh, Temple University, and that's where I uh, received the commission in the Army, along with a uh, teaching degree. So I went in uh, through the ROTC program. I was Second Lieutenant Adjutant General Corps, uh, but they had a detailed program at that time. Uh, regular Army, you had to go through a combat arm first. So uh, I went to Fort Benning Georgia in 1959 for the Infantry Officer Leaders course. From there, I was assigned to the 3rd Armored Division in Germany. I was a platoon leader in what was known as uh, Armored Rifle Battalion. Now it would be Mech Infantry, or used to be Mechanized Infantry. Uh, in the, in the Combat Command A, which would be 1st Brigade right now, and a place called Kirschgans, a little town near Frankfurt, Germany. Put in uh, 20 years in the uh, in the army. The headquarters I was in in, in Vietnam was uh, U- United States Army Vietnam, and General Abrams was the commander then. And General Abrams was also the commander of the Third Armored Division when I was there in 1960 in uh, Germany. Kind of strange coincidence. I've uh, met. Uh... Tony, uh, years ago, as he was a volunteer at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and was always uh, very helpful to everyone uh, who, who needed any help. But let's get back to you're on an airplane on your way to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. What do you expect and what, what, what was your first week like? Yeah, okay, that's, a good, that's, that's good. I, yeah, well, I left, uh, I left a family in Stuttgart. The Army let, uh, let them stay on the base. And uh, they had a promise that they would send me back to Germany after. So that was that was a good deal. But, uh, of course, I was very sad, uh, leaving around Christmas time. It was uh, December. Uh, actually, uh, they sent me from Stuttgart. They sent me to Fort Lewis, Washington, to go through training. 
and uh, I've been by jungle fatigues and all that, and there's snow on the ground. So that was my first thought about what a strange situation. The whole war in Vietnam to me was strange, and that started out strange, <laughs> training me with the... Uh, I had these canvas boots on, and there's snow around there. But uh, anyway, so there, and then on the plane, I kept thinking, you know, what, what lies ahead here? I uh, I was going to be assigned to the 4th Infantry Division, Adjutant General Corps. So I was thinking, you know, personnel management, which I've been doing, thinking about what, what I might be running into. It's a long, it was a long ride, a very long plane ride. I didn't know what when we landed, whether it was, you know, whether I was supposed to be hungry or tired. I mean, it was such a long trip. And then they, they put these big searchlights on the plane. And I remember the night before, uh, there had been a rocket attack on the And I'm thinking, why are you lighting up this plane? Uh, just uh, <laughs> So I, I ran off of the plane as fast as I could, got to the bus that was waiting for us with the wire mesh on the, on the, uh, on the windows. And uh, it took us to uh, a reception area. And I remember the first first thing we did, we had to watch General Westmoreland tell us why we were there. And I, again, it was I think it was two o'clock in the morning. I know it was dark. And from there, we went to a place where we had to brush our teeth. Uh, we had um, brush fluoride treatment because there weren't many dentists in Vietnam. And I remember standing along this trough, like horses, rolling in front of the trough. And this PFC had control of the water. And he said, all right, gentlemen, take off your green uniform. If you have it on, you might stain it. And uh, want to, we're going to brush your teeth for one, three minutes, and then I'll turn the water on. And I kept thinking, suppose the Roman legions are going into a country. And I could hear this guy saying, hey, Flavius, yeah, take off the breastplate. You might stain it, you know. And you had to laugh. I had to laugh about the whole situation. To me, it was, it was, it was surreal. Anyway, he did that, brush the teeth. Got in, got into the bunk, and next morning I found out that uh, I was being signed to USAV, United States Army Vietnam Headquarters, and not the 4th Infantry Division. No explanation, nothing. So helicopter down and uh, got acquainted with my, my new assignment. But to answer your question, it was just you know, a lot of uncertainty. Why am I going? What was I going? I, uh, I had my doubts about the war itself, um, and, uh, but I was a career officer. And um, I had no choice. I, I went. I I remember that uh, <laughs> when I got to Long Bend, the, the the strange thing was Bob Hope was there with his uh, troop, and we were there was a big field, open field. I remember a lot of troops there, and it was hot. It was like December twenty one, twenty two, something like that, right before Christmas. And I was thinking, how many of these soldiers uh, will I be writing reports on later on? How many of them? It was it was kind of a uh, it's just a strange feeling. Well, let's talk about writing reports. I mean, a, a certain number of people are going to become casualties in, in warfare, and you've got parents back home, you've got congressmen, mm-hmm. you've got other, a, a lot of people you answer to. So tell us what you actually did in yes. Vietnam regarding yeah, okay. the, the, the casualties and, yeah. and uh, your, your job. Yeah, I worked in the headquarters uh, with... Uh, some great uh, list of men. There were uh, one guy that was uh, an English major. <laughs> he taught English in, in college. He was a guy that read all the letters of sympathy before they went back, cleared them to make sure that we had the right circumstances in the letter. For example, it was said that he was shot in the left leg, and, which says the left leg is where he was shot, and not otherwise. And, and no unconscious humor in in the letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah. way it, way it happened, uh, we had a. Uh, 
we operated by telephone and um, telex. You know, that's about the only way. There were no computers. And we would get, and my, my shift when I first worked was seven at night to uh, seven in the morning, which was daytime back in the States, in the Pentagon, exactly opposite time. So that's when I would get calls from the Pentagon to follow up on certain things. But anyway, going back to the way the reports came in, they would either come in from a hospital or from a unit. And, and then we coordinate the two. So if it came in from the unit first, then we naturally get to the hospital and get the details. We reported on wounded, killed in action, sick, or missing. There's sort of different categories. And we had different uh, code words for each one of them. So then we, when we get the report, type up the report, make sure all the circumstances were right. There was a standard format that we had to follow from the Department of the Army. And I would sign off on the reports, and then they would be sent out. One time, I was given a top-secret clearance because we had troops in areas that the public did not know about. So I was the only one that could send those reports out. And they all were heading Southeast Asia. None of them had the grid coordinates from Vietnam. But anyway, then we would get the letters of sympathy in. And uh, before they went out, we would check them, make sure, like I said, all the details were correct, spelling, et cetera. And uh, then the chaplains would write letters, or we would check those out also. I, I think the, the Army did a tremendous job uh, in identifying bodies and making sure that the next of kin were informed. Uh, I would get reports or requests from congressmen and the president. Uh, I think I had, I had four hours to answer the president. I had eight hours to answer Congress. Now, we're in Vietnam. I got telephones, <laughs> and there's no computer and all that, but uh, we, we did our darndest to, to get the answers back. I did have one erroneous notification, I thought, and I thought my career was over. Someone uh, was killed there, and he had taken someone else's identity uh, and, and enlisted in the service. So when we went to notify the next of kin, uh, using the name that he gave us, uh, yeah. he said, no, he was, mother said he was in Panama as a policeman. And anyway, we, uh, we found out through, uh, fingerprints later on that, uh, he had, he had done, he'd done this, uh, erroneous, uh, enlistment. And, uh, but I really, that, I was sweating at that. I said, that's my career right there. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, that, those are the, yeah. the strangest things. What kind of emotions did you feel? Not only well, seeing these dead bodies, but, you know, yeah. you must have had a good feeling about doing the right thing, about notifying well, the, the parents, the congressmen, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, well, it, it was uh, it was tough. It was tough, uh, especially with the daily reports. And I had to turn myself off. Well, we've spoken to some veterans who dealt with it in different ways. You know, some people would self-medicate, you know, using alcohol and getting into trouble and so forth and so on. But by and large, uh, most veterans came through very, very well, and, and we've really talked to some incredible people. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Tony, at this time, we're going to turn it over to Saigon Steve. Okay, Tony, you know, one death is a tragedy. Numerous deaths are statistics. Had you heard that before? Yeah, we, we had a report statistics, that's true. But, you know, what it, what it what I learned is that uh, just seeing the names of the people and then looking at the families, you know, how many people came from broken homes or different, you know, mother and father divorced. I, 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 that had never hit me before. 
until I saw all these reports. And then the fact that there were so many different religions, different uh, races, people talk about in our country and um, the fact that uh, there were people on the wall who were Catholics, people Protestants, people atheists, people Muslims, uh, black, white, all kinds of people. And uh, I think that's that's what impressed me the most. So this this was uh, uh, this this was America, really. In one way, you had to pull yourself away from it, but in the other way, I was proud. I was proud of the guys. And these are all young guys working in there, and uh, they were they they did the job, and they made sure everything was right that we were we were doing what we were supposed to be doing, and that we we uh, we served our country. So these casualty reports that were sent in by the units, were they coming yeah. directly to your office or were they going someplace first and then to you? No, right right to me, yeah, directly into the message, well, in the message center in the headquarters there, yeah. And uh, they were all paper copies. And that was the other thing. We had had a row, row uh, I, I'm trying to think of the number, maybe 50-50 filing cabinets, you know, four-drawer filing cabinets so in the center of the room, in the middle of the room. And when I worked at night, we all stayed on this side, away from the windows of the filing cabinet, because that base got hit by rockets a couple of times. And this is another strange thing about being surreal. The whole headquarters building was lit up, and we were on the highest hill of the place. That, that was kind of frightening every night to think about. So we all stayed on this side of the filing cabinet. And we were putting them all into a computer format, you know, something that they could read a the, the old uh, cars that we had, that uh, but uh, that I don't think that project was ever completed. We called it the Edsel Project. By the time we got mm. to it, it was this was 1970, so it was hard to recapture all of the all the statistics. Every morning at three o'clock, you could set your watch by it. The uh, ammo trucks and the P.O.L. Petroleum Oil Lubricant trucks would line up bumper to bumper at the same intersection. I'm thinking of ops, you know, security and all this, and then the uh, so surreal is the only word I can use, I guess. <laughs> Didn't your office also handle requests from families that said, you know, we haven't heard from our, our boy? Yeah, health and welfare reports, yeah. They would uh, they would come in and um, and say, you know, they haven't heard from Johnny in, in such a long time. We'd go to the unit. The normal comment back was uh, present for duty, capable of writing, and uh, been advised to write. So um, that, that's where we went back. I did have one funny one. I don't know if you want me to tell you the funny one or not. Well, tell us. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, this one, I guess, again, people getting a little giddy out there. Instead of um, present for duty, capable of writing, been advised to write, they came back, present for duty, happy as a lark, uh, drinks a quart of booze all day, and that's fine. He's fine. So... I sent it to the Pentagon the same way. And it had, had this request hadn't have come from a congressman. Pentagon, the colonel there in the Pentagon, sent it on to the congressman the same way, word for word. So the next, next night I get a call from the colonel, I forgot his name, but uh, he wasn't happy. And he, he told me what happened. And I said, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I said, do you want to you send me to Vietnam? I mean, I don't know what I can tell you. We were just having a little fun. But... Um, yeah, that that did happen. And your job, there's so much mm-hmm. death being dealt with. You need some frivolity somewhere. Exactly. Well, this is a very uh, 
deep subject, but I understand that you have a story where the wife was notified that her husband was cremated, and she was oh. happy about it. Yeah, yeah. This was another surprise. You never, you never know how things are going to be taken. Yeah, you know, it was uh, apparently the Koreans uh, cremated their dead in uh, Vietnam, and uh, apparently uh, there was an army sergeant, U.S. Army sergeant, uh, in the in the same mortuary or the or the graves registration, wherever it was, uh, with a Korean soldier. So the Koreans came. And they were given the wrong body. They were given the body of the sergeant. And uh, when I found out about it, I, uh, I called the Department of the Army and, and sent the report to them. And I said, when you make the notification, make sure you have a doctor, maybe a medical officer with you, and a chaplain for sure, because I think his wife is going to go ballistic. So <laughs> they waited for the next night after they made the notification. I get a call. I said, Tony will never believe it. His wife was ecstatic. Apparently, the sergeant uh, drinking problem, and uh, he was very abusive and beat her up. And she said, "The words were, I'm glad the army burned the uh, sob." So that was, uh, I think he said, "You never know, you never know." Well, that's a heck of a way to end our interview. <laughs> we will say this, Tony Fasolo, thank you for your service. Yeah, all right, thank you. Well, that wraps up another special episode of Foo Cat Stories. If you'd like to participate in a future Foo Cat Stories podcast, email your contact information to foocatstories at gmail.com. That's foocatstories at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Foo Cat Stories podcast. I'm Saigon Steve. <laughs>